conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is back from a hiatus. I needed a little break after episode 250 and today I am joined by Julia Alexander to talk a little bit about Disney, Disney Plus, all things Disney, her newsletter, Musings on Mouse. So Julia, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm honored to be here. Yeah, I've been reading your newsletter and I was like, wow, I'm really glad someone did this because when Disney Plus launched, I know a lot of people had so many thoughts and then the pandemic happened and everyone was like, what's happening with movies? So, you know, I'm glad I had your newsletter to read throughout that time period. <laughs> Thank you. That means... uh means a lot to me. I wanted to ask you, what is it about Disney for you that made you want to start that newsletter? It was a, it's a combination of things. I mean, the two like primary, well, the three primary aspects of it. One, I was a Disney, like, I'm still a Disney person. I love Disney in terms of just entertainment. Um, big Marvel fan, big Star Wars fan, big Pixar fan, you know, big Disney, like all, all the things that they do, or sorry, the company does, I am a big fan of. Um, that was the first one. But the second thing, which I think was the bigger factor, was I really wanted to write specifically about the business of Disney, not so much what they were making, or at least what they were making in terms of what this meant for the overall kind of revolutionary entertainment landscape that we're in. And there are a few reporters who do that really well. And at the time, when I was still reporting full time, I wanted to do really, really deep dives into this kind of philosophy behind what their strategy was and figure out what was going on in the C-suite over at Disney and, and just talk about it and what this meant for them going forward as kind of this, you know, really legacy conglomerate um, competing with both other entertainment legacy conglomerates like Warner Media, which, you know, is now owned by, or was, at, you know, that point was very much AT&T's thing um, at, at, alongside Netflix and Facebook and um, Amazon. Uh, and so part of that, which leads into the third part, is that I didn't have the time to do it at work. I it was something where I wanted to go really deep on this. And my editors at the time over at The Verge were very supportive. And they let me um, write arguably too much about things that I really loved writing about. Um, <laughs> but there's a time and an audience for that type of writing. So I started the newsletter in for myself, really, just because I'm someone who, um, like, I don't sleep at night. Like, I really just kind of tinker like I, I write I, I try to build stuff I plan um, and so I had all this time at night so I don't sleep and I was just like I'm gonna write this newsletter um, and it took off much more than I expected it ever to yeah you also have this column within the newsletter called movie equations and I thought this was something that was different from what a lot of publications were doing because oftentimes it seems like They'll look at box office numbers and things like that, but because now anything that hits streaming, you don't necessarily have those numbers. So I thought just the way you were sort of looking at these streaming services and the Oscars was a different take than what we're used to seeing. Yeah, thank you. Um, I appreciate that. I I think I'm driven by this obsession with uh, what the new normal becomes, and I think I and the and other analysts and other reporters and other executives were in a really interesting and challenging and that because it's challenging, exciting moment that I feel very lucky uh, and privileged to be part of where we are trying to figure out the new normal. We're trying to figure out 
mass changes in consumption in consumer behavior and how they consume content um, in a way that if we think about these major moments, whether it's the industrial revolution, you know, whether what we look at, these are things that took, you know, hundred years to really happen going back even before that, like it's, uh, you know, 500 years. By the time we get to this moment now where everything is going from a TV set or, you know, a newspaper or a book into something, a, a physical book, I should say, into something that is sent to your device in your pocket and you can access it at any point. And this has changed the way we communicate, the way that we consume, the way that we create. That happened in the span of about 10 to 15 years. And that's a revolutionary moment inside a very tiny blip of life that we are trying to reconcile with. And I think the film industry is particularly interesting to me because it is so archaic in so many ways, where it was up until five, 10 years ago, really up until Netflix and Amazon came in and said, why don't we like revolutionize things in Apple to an extent? It was not, nothing really had changed. Like VHS led into Blu-ray and like home video was a thing, you know, VCR sets were a thing, but it was still very much what it was in the fifties and sixties and, and kind of the development stuff hadn't really changed, especially on the business side and the way that we looked at strategy for films and, and, dist and dist um, distributing films. It was go to the box office. It sits there for 90 days. Uh, and then it goes into a, a home uh, video window and then it goes into a pay one window, which is just then you can watch it on HBO or you can watch it on Showtime. Uh, and now we are trying very quickly to establish a new normal when the normal has not changed in a hundred years. And so I think for me, I was obsessed with the math of it, trying to figure out like, what is a success? What is, you know, I, I tweet about this a lot, this idea that it went from being, okay, this movie has to perform well opening weekend. And then the second week drop off, you know, can't really be, we don't want it to be less than 10%, you know, 15%. Um, by the time that it's within 45 to 50 days, the film makes about 90% of its revenue. But how can we get those last stragglers in? Does this account for how much we're spending on PL at the theaters and, and marketing and all this extra kind of cost uh, evaluation that we look at? It went from being that was the only primary factor, and then eventually it went to a window where, and then you would have those conversations, those negotiations with the different TV, cable, and network guys. And now it is, yeah, the opening weekend is just is important, but we're not going to really go beyond 45 days unless it's a massive movie that we think will hold legs for 10, 11 weeks. We know that we make the majority of our revenue about 90 to 95% within 45 days. And now we have these streaming services. So the question then goes, okay, we have to make our money there. And then when we're bringing it over to Disney Plus or HBO Max or Peacock, the longer is opening weekend. It is what's the 30-day acquisition and retention number look like? What is the 60-day? What's the 90-day? If we have an incredible retention rate, which just means that people aren't canceling and they're signing up to watch these movies then they know that they can increase their cost of their streaming services every year or two. And that leads to something uh, very boring, but we just refer, refer to as ARPU, which is the average revenue per user. And that's the big thing where it's like, okay, cool. If we add more customers, which is the main thing. And we keep those customers, which is the second part. Then we can increase our prices and generate more revenue on those customers. So the, the equations shift into a way that newcomers into those companies were figuring that out are trying to figure out and they're trying to understand they're coming at it from a digital first angle, but you've got teams on uh, the strategy teams over there who are also like, this is not how we used to do things. And we're trying to figure out how we continue to earn revenue and then hit profit levels while also dealing with the system that is just decades old. 
Right. And I will say I'm kind of Disney's perfect customer because I am someone who is too lazy to unsubscribe and resubscribe to all of the streaming services. So I just pay for them all, all the time. (laughs) And, you know, Disney's probably getting more money out of me now than they ever did before, because I wasn't someone who was big on going to the movies until I had a job, had my own money. It wasn't something I did with my parents a ton. It wasn't something I even did with my friends a ton. For some reason, I'd go every once in a while. But now, you know, I have the AMC A-list subscription. I have the Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus bundle. So I'm going to theaters when I can to see things and then also watching them at home because, you know, when Disney Plus first launched, they didn't have a massive catalog like Netflix and Hulu do now, but they had enough stuff that I was specifically interested in to keep me subscribed in the way they're doing the weekly releases for the shows and only having like a few weeks in between each new show, that's really smart on their part. Because for someone like me who wants to keep up with all the Marvel and Star Wars and Pixar stuff, I'm not going to unsubscribe because I don't want to miss out on the conversation with my friends still. Right. And that's exactly in the irony with that type of behavior, which is I'm, I'm very similar. And that is kind of the understood consumption behavior of customers. And that's why we see HBO Max, which is leaning on the HBO kind of cable distribution structure of weekly, um, why we're seeing other ones leaning into weekly when they can or doing the drop three at once and then weekly. And it's this idea that as long as there's always something, then the uh, value, the perceived value of what you're spending $8 a month on is worth it because every week there's something you're opening. And ideally, every day there's something that you're opening the app for, you're getting something out of it, the return on your investment the perceived value of what you're spending is obvious. And that's a great place to be in for Disney, for their customers to feel that way. You know, and the irony here, though, is that this is how television has run for decades, right? This was this idea of fall season, winter season, spring season, summer season. And the fall was your heavy hitter. You come in, you've got 24 weeks or 22 weeks if you're, if you're broadcast. You've got 10 to 12 weeks per cable. Come in, you do your show, and then it overlaps. You know, Game of Thrones would end and girls would start or whatever it was on HBO. Like It was constantly something shifting in and out. Um, and on the broadcast side, it was longer because it had to go throughout the entire year without any weeks off because of advertisers. Um, and now we're seeing that happen with streaming because the perceived value of cable was that there was always something new or something to watch whenever you needed it. If you wanted something exciting on Sunday... There was something on HBO, so you paid the extra $15 in your cable package to have it. And sports, of course, being the big one. Or if there was just something, you know, HGTV was on, you wanted to kind of put something on, you cooked. You're like, I'm going to throw on HGTV, and I got my perceived value here. I feel good about my ROI. Streaming is in the exact same position, where Disney goes, we don't have a great library, which they're aware of. You know, they've got a library for families and kids that they're happy with. They've got some classic films for true Disney fans, which is awesome. Uh, But their Disney Plus library is not great compared to their original series. That's why Disney comes in and goes, we're going to bundle this for you. If you spend $5 more, you're going to get all of Hulu. And Hulu's got the best, it's got the most in-demand catalog across any of the major uh, streaming services in the United States. And so they go, yeah, we know, like we don't, we're not putting Star in uh, to Disney Plus in the U.S. because of ongoing, they cannot do that to Hulu right now for many reasons. And so they're like, yeah, we would love you to come and watch Hulu. So you're spending more time in the streaming bundle. For us, you're not going to Netflix, which is extremely good at saying, here's something new, but also here's everything else that you want to watch. Peacock, which goes, we don't have anything new really, but, and Paramount Plus is similar, but we have all these classic shows and movies that you want to watch. 
it's the exact same formula. The, the difference is people are much more aware of what they're spending and the value of what they're getting out of that spending. And it's never been easier to cancel, right? If I don't, if you ever had cable, trying to cancel cable was a nightmare. You just didn't. You're like, you know what? I don't even care. I will pay it because I don't want to be on the phone for five hours having to do this. Streaming, it's a, it's a, it's one button. It's like, I'm going to cancel this. No, are you sure you want to cancel? Yes, I'm going to cancel. Which is why the executives have now started to come in because they're hitting saturation points in the US where they're going, we assume you will leave at some point. Like, we get it. Our goal is to keep you as often as possible or have something to bring you back in. Um, and so I think that's, it's a fun conversation to have with people in the industry about how you plan to ensure customers feel like, yeah, it's worth it for me to keep this every single month because it's so easy to get rid of it. Right. And right now I'm not living super close to a movie theater. I think I drive about 15 miles to get to the closest AMC. And, you know, I was actually just in the app today because I was, you know, kind of reconfiguring my work week to go to the movies on Wednesday because I go by myself more often than not. And I like going when it's not crowded. And I looked and they cut out all of the 1 and 2 p.m. showtimes right now. So the movie theater isn't even opening until like three or four in the afternoon during the week because, you know, for them, it's just not super viable right now. Obviously, they still have to pay their lease and everything monthly, but to pay workers to be there for like, you know, me and nine other people to go to the movies at the one and two o'clock hours in the middle of the week, it's probably not worth it for them. And I've had friends who they will buy, you know, the premiere access to watch something at home because they're still not comfortable going to theaters. And you made the point earlier how things haven't changed in decades for the movie theater going experience, really, other than all the prices going up because of inflation and whatnot. But for me, you know, it's not necessarily super convenient to go to the theater because it takes me like an hour round trip to go. So that's like an hour out of my day I could spend doing work or my podcasts or videos or something. And it's becoming so much easier to watch things at home. So, you know, you can't really blame people for wanting to do that. And, you know, at the same time, right now, the comic book industry is going through something similar. A lot of comic book writers and artists have just announced deals with Substack. And I guess comic book shops are getting mad that, you know, there's going to be stuff that's digital first and shops aren't going to get it before some other consumers get it. And my thinking is, okay, we have to do something because you can't expect, you know, creators, filmmakers, actors, crew to not want to get paid for their work. Right. There's a few really interesting points in, in what you brought up. The first is the reason streaming works and the reason that Premiere Access works or wherever, um, you know, you go buy a movie on Prime Video, whatever it may be. But yeah, Premiere Access may be the best example. The reason that works is because there were a few shifts over the last 30 years that have allowed this to happen with the exact same or near similar level of enjoyment. Technology has gotten increasingly better. Wireless internet is faster than ever before. And its accessibility and availability in homes is never been easier, better. So what that means is you have a big screen TV. And if, you, you know, if you're my brother, if you're my partner, you have a massive kind of surround sound system thing going on. On top of that, you're sitting on your couch at home that is 
a nice couch and you're really comfortable in it and you have your cool lights, your cue lights, you can make your own kind of light show go on when you're watching the movie. Um, you don't have to go out and have to deal with people who might be coughing or are rude or are texting. You can do this all over your internet, which doesn't stutter. Uh, it looks pretty good. And it's just, the, it's one click on your remote because your credit card is stored. It takes 30 seconds to do this. And the experience is fun. Now I'm someone who lives in Brooklyn. I go to the movie theater about twice a week. I'm not here to say like theaters are dead. I truly don't believe theaters are dead. I think theaters like Alamo or Nighthawk and, and that we have in Brooklyn will continue to thrive because they create an experience. And I think AMC and Regal will lean into creating a new find kind of communal experience, which is leaning on the concert series and the UFC and the WWE, which is what AMC did 15 years ago. And then they kind of stopped. But in lieu of having those 90 day guarantees with studios, which means that they're losing out on PL revenue, uh, which is just when studios rent out theaters and they pay for it. Uh, and they're not, there's a bunch of other financial stuff happening in the background. They go to others and say, Hey, can we broadcast your event? We think it will bring in hundred people and they go in that direction. Um, the other thing though, that goes on specifically with the Disney plus premier access portal is that if you are a family and you've got a movie like uh, Cruella or whatever it may be, your kids are at home, there's a Delta variant, they're not vaccinated, and it's like, oh, we just need something to entertain you. Way easier to buy a movie for $30, which is cheaper anyways, and they can watch on repeat. You know, you think about Raya, which is had the exact same experience. Soul and Luca are already there for free, so that's great. It's like, oh yeah, we don't have to pay for every movie. Disney's giving us these great Pixar movies, you know, quote unquote for free as part of your subscript, your monthly subscription. But then for thirty dollars, you get these movies your kids are going to enjoy because it's Disney, and they'll rewatch it over and over and over again. So the actual return on investment of the thirty dollars is quadruple because they're going to be entertained, and you don't have to really spend anything else on it. You don't have to go back to a theater for a second or third time, or then buy a DVD later on to have them watch it. I mean, the creator economy is a whole other conversation, but the thing that specifically, if we look at some of the artists who are doing the Substack move, right, if we look at James Tynan, if we look at Snyder, Scott Snyder, not um, Zach, <laughs> we look at them, the, the, this very specific thing about their move that, that sticks out to me is they're moving away from the imprints, uh, which are DC, which is whoever they're working for. Because their original works are so, they built up a fan base. Their original works are so heavily in demand. People are seeking them out. They're buying them on whatever comic book shop or digital app they're going to. But even more importantly, the networks and the studios and the streamers want to adapt them. Like they want those stories. So James Tinian does a new comic. You know, two months later, it's like, so Sony has acquired the rights. Netflix acquires the rights. Like they're doing this thing. If you are working on the DC Vertigo label, not Vertigo, excuse me, the DC Black label or whatever other label it may be, all of a sudden, that's a DC project. You, you're going to get something from it, but it belongs to this publisher, and the publisher is going to take a cut of that. Now, if you're on Substack, the thing that pointed it, the thing that came out from Chris Best's uh, specific post about this, he's the CEO of Substack, the co-founder, I believe, is that they retain all rights. So Substack takes its percentage, whatever, 10, 15% of all, of all uh, subscribers. Fine, but they go, no, no, you keep your rights. You have a comic that does really well, and all of a sudden, somebody from Warner Brothers or whomever is like, I want to make your thing. This is, it seems cool. There's an audience here. I see people talking about it. And this kind of speaks to the streaming stuff as well, where Disney goes, we get all these people to sign up or buy their movie via uh, Apple or Google or, or in their minds, ideally via a browser, you're making 80 to 100% of the revenue versus 65% and paying for additional rent stuff. 
it's just a bunch bigger, a better bet for them on certain films. Not that they're going to give up theatrical because they can't right now, but there's a way to go, hey, how can we make the most revenue for what we're going to do instead of having to cut it up and divvy it up? Um, and so I think with creators, that's what we're seeing happen with Substack. You know, what it means for the comic book shops, what it means for the, I mean, like Blockbuster, I don't think comic book shops are going to die, but I think there's a reason that Blockbuster went away, right? It's this idea of like, at some point, businesses uh, mature and they move on to something else and new businesses emerge. You know, we look at GameStop as a great example where the new board of GameStop is basically all Amazon executives, former Amazon executives who know a lot about e-commerce and digital retail and having these kind of big events that they can lean into. It's not just selling games anymore because nobody's doing that. I think comic book shops are in that situation where they have to figure that out. And I think comic book customers are always going to want, especially the diehards are always going to want a physical copy. If they're right, if their favorite writers are moving to Substack, if the other stuff they can get via comicsology or, or whatever is just as good. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a reason certain businesses don't stick around. Not that I'm saying this will happen here, but it's about adapting. Yeah, and to me the Substack deal is similar to Netflix giving deals to Ryan Murphy, Shonda Rhimes and paying them, you know, either yearly or upfront, sometimes both for future content. And that's basically what Substack is doing. They're like, here's money up front and then it allows the writers especially to be able to pay the artists and colorists and letterers and, you know, it's kind of similar with Netflix in that way. So to me, I'm just like, yeah, of course, the comic book creators are going to do this. It makes way more sense for them from a financial standpoint, because they're not relying on a publisher to pay page rates. And, you know, maybe they'd be lower than what an artist is able to get working on their own doing something through Kickstarter and things like that. So, you know, it's just very interesting how both movies and comics are sort of going through these big changes and these industries are fairly tied in a way because of that IP that people want to adapt. You brought up a really good point. I just want to touch upon. There's this idea that I feel like a lot of, no, I don't say a lot. I feel like some reporters or some publications stress that this is a thing happening uh, industry-wide, right? This is a thing. And it, and it is to an extent where there are instances of people both in journalism, in film. So journalism, you know, people going to Substack, comic book writers, artists going to Substack, um, showrunners and directors signing overall deals. This is like 0.05% of people who are going, hey, I've got 100,000 followers or I've got, you know, a million fans who will support me if I go over here. I know that I can make this financial, but it's still scary. Right. Obviously, I imagine if you're James Tynan, the idea of leaving Batman and hoping that new fans find you via just word of mouth instead of finding you via tuning into Batman is a bit of a concern, even though he's at a really good point in his career. The conversation, you know, this kind of came up with ScarJo, too, with the Scarlett Johansson stuff, where it was like, you know, she's not the only person this is happening to. She is the biggest domino to fall. But writers were in the WGA were specifically fighting the streamers on this a few years ago where they're like we are working more and being paid less because of the way that work is happening the way that royalties the way that just money is being handed out the way that we are being paid and i think that's the conversation it's not necessarily what's going to happen with the superstars where they're going like they're going to be fine they'll go their own way they probably always were eventually think of like journalists who end up becoming great novelists or whatever it may be and like that's a complicated thing but you know directors really take off 
they're always going to do their own thing. Like they're at that point in their careers. The unions will get involved and the agencies will get involved. And eventually that is what will lead to change. Because if you are Disney, so not working with Scarlett, Scarlett Johansson's filing a lawsuit, not great. You have a very strict public image. You're very much like Apple in this way. You want people to think of you as a certain type of company uh, and you don't want a lawsuit. But that's a fight they'll take on. They'll figure it out. They'll, they'll, they'll settle it, um, either in or outside of court. Disney versus something like SAG-AFTRA, Disney versus something like, you know, the DGA, the WGA, that's something they don't want. That is like, I don't want to fight the unions and the guilds because I don't want this to impose where we shoot, who we can work with, what we can do. Uh, Hollywood is a union-run town in the best way possible. Like that, Those unions protect the talent and, and not just A-list talent, but every piece of, every person working on a set or contributing to a product, a, a production uh, and so I think that's when we're really going to start to see things come in. We just need these big moments to continue happening for for their this case to build up. So the big comic book writers leave and they go do their thing at Substack, right? And then they're getting 100% uh, revenue in the deals with Netflix or whatever. You know, you've got ScarJo filing a lawsuit and that brings up questions about other actors or other crew members involved in these types of things. Once those start to, those uh, complaints start to come in, I think we'll see a bit of a domino effect where you'll see more metrics come out via the companies because that's one thing they'll demand. Because how do you prove someone's a movie star circa 1970, 1980? You point to the box office and you go, look how much this movie made. I feel like Mark Hamill or Harrison Ford, specifically Harrison Ford, um, Carrie Fisher, seems like they might be uh, future movie stars in the making. Look at what they can do. And then so they become a movie star and their agents become very happy because they get very wealthy. And without that, it's hard to argue on behalf of your clients, something that companies, including where I work at Parrot, you know, that's something that we want to look into is, is how do we look at, how do we measure this kind of demand in a digital age when the way that we are consuming, the way that we are talking and communicating about stuff, the way that we are gauging ma- mass interest and in stuff and what that means for subscription and retention revenue means, which is a long way of saying, uh, sorry, I know I can ramble. All these things happening are all building up to the actual story. These are just little stories along the way. But this is why it, that's why I started the newsletter to go back to it. I think we're in a revolutionary moment. Everyone is trying to figure it out. Um, and no one, no one knows the answer. Yeah, I find this all fascinating. So ramble all you would like. And, you know, one of the other things I want to talk to you about, though, is the content strategy for Disney Plus, because We've seen them doing things specifically with Marvel and Star Wars that maybe they wouldn't have done in the movies. You know, I don't think WandaVision necessarily would have worked as a movie. The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, in my opinion, was the most safe of the three shows. It was the most MCU-like for me. You know, Loki's a fan favorite, so I think they kind of could have done anything with him and people would have watched it. But, you know, today, actually, the... Star Wars Visions trailer dropped, and they are having seven different anime studios work on nine episodes. So, you know, there's a risk there because those seven studios are going to have all slightly different styles. So from a content standpoint, do you think Disney Plus is definitely allowing Disney to take some more risks as far as what type of content they're showing fans? Without question. Yeah, undeniably. And they have to be. Disney Plus cannot succeed on just the quintessential Disney look, the quintessential Disney product. They have to produce more. 
and you can't just produce more of the same. So you take your chances, you know, Marvel gets uh, a what if, which is funny to say is a risk because prior to the MCU, arguably the biggest Marvel successes outside of the Spider-Man and Wolverine live action franchises were the TV shows or the cartoons uh, that people loved. I mean, like X-Men, all of those things. But you look at what if, and it's actually a departure from what they were doing over the last 12 years. And so that's something new what they're playing around with. That's not something they're going to do in theaters because it wouldn't make sense. They're not going to get that return on their investment. And they know that. But it's something that week after week, they know Marvel fans will dig into. The cartoon aesthetic really appeals to kids. So if you're trying to think of how to get your child started on Marvel, it's like, maybe we start with what if. Like, maybe we go here and they watch this and then we go and watch the movies. Um, Like, there's that equation. I think what's really interesting and notable about the Star Wars anime decision one, it's very, it's it's fun. It's beautiful to look at. It's fun. It is um, different, which I think is so necessary for Disney and Star Wars. So I think Star Wars, you know, if we think about Bob Iger saying there's a bit of Star Wars fatigue with the movies, it also, Star Wars, there. I mean, it is very much in demand globally, but how do you bring in new fans and non-Western fans, I think specifically, who don't care about the Skywalker saga as much? And I believe Bob Iger said that in, in an earnings call at one point. You know, how do you bring in those fans who want to be more into Star Wars, but they're not as into what we've seen come out of Lucasfilm and Disney over the last, you know, 40 years, but especially the last decade. One great way to tap into an emerging market and new fan base who we know are interested in sci-fi and action um, and thriller stuff is anime. And we know it's because the the data is there, where anime is one of the fastest growing genres of content. It has a massive global appeal uh, for fan bases around the world. It is much cheaper to produce on average than live action, of course. Um, And it's the type of one-off event you can do that gets people really jazzed about something really new in the Star Wars, you know, kind of universe. And so what they're doing is smart. They're tapping into a potential new audience that comes in via the anime. And then once they're there for Disney Plus, they might watch other Star Wars things, including Clone Wars or whatever it may be, Bad Batch. And now they're kind of invested in this universe. And so they've got a lot of stuff to watch and they're engaged with it daily. And they're they're subscribing to it weekly or, or, sorry, excuse me, monthly or annually. But they're tapping in to a very specific genre of content because it is one of the fastest growing genres of content globally it's the exact same reason amazon and netflix are doing that they know and i our company you know Paradigm analytics the data we can see that we can see the data for anime demand and it is massive it is bigger than almost anything you know outside of kind of drama action type stuff um but there's a huge crossover in those audiences and so i think they have to be experimental because if they're not then they become boring they become redundant what netflix does really well is they experiment with everything to the point where they almost do too much experimentation and it's like all of a sudden they're doing they're now the the game show uh streaming service or the the, the, the reality show service instead of being like oh wasn't this the service that did like orange is the new black four years five six years ago but they're willing to take chances because they're going we don't know what the next big hit or trend is going to be we have data that can inform us but we want to see what sticks Disney, because they're so locked in to these five, six main franchises, or not franchises, excuse me, pillars that are built around different franchises, they don't have as much room to play with on the theatrical side outside of kind of Pixar, and which takes a lot of fun chances in the, in the last few years, and Disney um, live action, well, oh, not so much over the last few years, but Disney animation. 
where they are going like, we, we know to safe bet is, but we're also going to go to theaters. So we pretty much know we can make the revenue on this Marvel star Wars. We pretty much know we're going to do fine. No matter what we put them in theaters, they'll do fine on Disney plus when you have to keep people engaged daily or at least weekly to ensure that people are feeling like they're like the value proposition is there for them. You have to experiment and just see what happens And anime or animation allows them to do it at a much cheaper rate than they would have to do with live action. So they can spend $120 million on Falcon winter soldier or whatever that show was, it was like 25 million an episode, whatever that ends up being for them. They can do that and know that's the massive acquisition drivers. It's the massive thing that gets people in. They get talking about it and the engagement goes up. But in order to keep people and in order to get them excited about the franchises that you don't want them to burn out on, you find new ways in that are slightly cheaper and then it becomes a really cool moment for fans and hopeful newcomers. Absolutely. And for me, I am a huge nerd when it comes to processes. So they've been doing a lot of behind the scenes looks at things. I watched the Imagineering show where they kind of go through how they built some of the rides and, you know, they have behind the scenes stuff for the show. So I think that's also another area where they're excelling with the content. And, you know, it's not really risky for them because that is stuff that's just kind of going to be there. And I think it's just fun stuff for the fans who like that. But yeah, I totally agree. You know, they are doing new things with the shows and they're doing it with Marvel, Star Wars, Pixar, and, you know, less so with Nat Geo, for instance, because yeah. that that's kind of like, you know exactly what to expect when you go to the Nat Geo section in the Disney Plus app, you you expect things about the wild and animals and, you know, they have that down. But I've really just been enjoying the variety of stuff that they have on there. Like, I've been watching Monsters at Work, which I feel like I saw absolutely no promotion for. I just came across it in the app and I was like, oh, I like Monsters, Inc. I'll check this out. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think, you know, part of the Monsters at Work the less the, the the smaller marketing strategy. If I'm on that team, and I don't know, I have absolutely no insight. But you definitely market it somewhat. But Monsters at Work, the audience is going to open up Disney Plus and go Monsters at Work is here in terms of what they're recommending and who's seeing it on their homepage. I imagine there's a pretty strong overlap with the kids who are watching Monsters Inc. or other Pixar, other um, animated movies in general. And so all of a sudden, it's like here's the top recommendation for you. Versus, and you know, obviously it's a costly-ish production because it's good animation. It's Pixar. Like, obviously you are spending some money on it, but you're not spending $25 million an episode. And so it's not this thing where it has to succeed because it has to drive. And and, um, to succeed on that front is, you know, does it bring in a certain amount of subscribers? Does it prevent people from canceling? Does it lead to increased engagement on something? You know, Bad Batch is a similar way where there's like there's marketing for Bad Batch, but not as much as the Mandalorian. It's well, Bad Batch is slightly cheaper to make, and we know that the people who are watching it are probably going to stick around and watch rewatch Clone Wars. They're watching other things. Um, so people open the app and they see Bad Batch. They it increases engagement and hopefully drives retention um, and some acquisition, but it's not going to drive the acquisition that Mando's Mandalorian is going to drive or other live action shows. What you said, which is really interesting too, about like the kind of the scene stuff. So Mad the Imagineering show, which is phenomenal. Uh, I really much love that series and that is very much stands on its own. But what I think I really love and also 
scoff at. But, you know, from a pure strategy perspective, it's great. The behind the scenes episode for each of their live action, whether they do Mandalorian, and they do WandaVision, whatever it may be, Loki, it's an hour and people go and they go, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to subscribe to another to this for another week. And it often is the week where there's an overlap in waiting for something where it's like, oh, well, there's no new Loki episode, but next week uh, Black Widow drops or whatever, or like we're going to have something else come in. You know, same thing with WandaVision, Falcon and Winter Soldier. All that is is a behind the scenes DVD bonus feature. Like that's all that is. It was a DVD bonus feature that they said, why don't we throw it on Disney Plus? We can turn it into its own series if we wanted to, break out all this additional behind the scenes content we're filming and just make it a series. And people are going to watch it because we know that Marvel and Star Wars particularly have stands, not just fans. They will watch it and they will screenshot it. And then it becomes, they don't have to lift a finger with marketing because they know the fans are going to go and do this thing. Or, oh, here's Tom Hiddleston. Look at him. He's like adorable. Here's Sebastian Stan. Here's Elizabeth Olsen, Evan Peters, uh, Anthony Mackie. They do that all on their own. Like it's like this, you know, it's that type of earned media that most companies would kill for where they're like, our fans are just going to go out and do this. We don't really have to market it, although we'll, you know, put obviously some money into it. And so I think what Disney's gotten really good at with Disney Plus is figuring out ways to invest heavily in the big acquisition drivers. So that's your Mandalorian, your WandaVision, whatever, into the retention drivers. And that's your Bad Batch, that's your, I would argue, Monsters at Work, those types of the the newish kind of movies that are direct to Disney Plus. Those are your retention drivers. People stop. They're not going to cancel because they have this other thing to watch. And then you've got your really, really cheap content that is like basically cutting room floor stuff that is going to be on Disney Plus and we're going to just market it as a really cool original thing. And if that leads to any bump in engagement or retention, and it's it's the main reason why people don't cancel right after WandaVision and then re-sign up right for whatever it may be, it's a major success for Disney. And so I think like they figured out very well, hey, we can just tap into this insane like fan base and just kind of give them behind the scenes content or, or documentaries that are pretty cheap to make that focus on this or animated specials um, and they're into it. And so I think Disney Plus has the unequivocal advantage of knowing that there is a, an audience that is probably not canceling because they want to you know, watch Star Wars and Marvel stuff and there's a direct overlap of it plus others. Uh, that Netflix and you know Warner to an extent would kill for, but it also means there's a burden of having to perform consistently. I you don't want Disney Plus to be the reason that all of a sudden Marvel Studios is loses its you know not edge but loses its kind of the shine that it is going for the glow. And so I think that is going to be interesting. Is like how do you with Disney Plus plus when films are really back when we're back to four Marvel films a year on top of Disney Plus, you know how do you keep it fresh because you can't just repurpose. I think to your exact point. You can't repurpose it for a streaming service. It doesn't work as well. It's boring. I did not like Falcon Winter Soldier as much as the others. What I liked about WandaVision and Loki was that it felt like an actual TV expansion of characters that was a whole new story instead of just a movie that felt like it was kind of turned into something for Disney Plus in order to make you know fans happy. The good thing for Marvel is the fact that they do have so many comics to pull from too, and there have been some weird things in the comics. So, you know, they at least have that sort of source material, like the What If series, you know, the What If comics were definitely not the biggest thing Marvel comics ever did, but they were interesting. And you had creators who were able to just play in Marvel's sandbox with these different ideas that did not have to be followed up with. And I think you have things like the Ultimate Universe, and there's a lot that I think they can pull from and 
use for Disney Plus in that sense. And, you know, Star Wars has the Legends books, so they could do stuff that's outside of canon if they really wanted to. They could do so many things with those two properties in particular. And, you know, Julia, one last question I had for you. Is there anything that you haven't seen from Disney Plus yet that you're hoping they will implement, whether it's different types of content on the strategy front or just on the business side of things? The easy and the obvious answer, but I also think it's the most important answer is so I think we have to first preface it by saying we're talking about Disney Plus as coming at this from a standpoint of an adult consumer who likes Disney, both animation, like so the Disney animation stuff on top of Star Wars Marvel. So when I say my answer, I'm going to preface it by saying I know this is different for kids. And the reason that Disney Plus is always going to be fine is that Disney is an undeniable, inevitable purchase for anyone with kids between the ages of two and 16. Like it's just just the thing you're gonna you're gonna have, uh, and so that's why Disney is in a relatively great position. It's why analysts are pretty strong, are bullish on it. It's why Wall Street's bullish on it. Like it's hard for Disney to lose that audience because there's always going to be kids and families want to watch Disney movies with them, and we have like multi generational affinity, which is you cannot buy. So with that said, the Disney Plus catalog in the U.S. is so lacking that it's it's almost ridiculous. You know, I say this, I, I've, I've written this in my newsletter. I've had this conversation with people. It's heavily reliant on a catalog of, of, of movies, really, um, that what they're missing, you say it this way, what they're missing is snackable content. If we think about what makes Netflix, and to an extent, Peacock uh, and Paramount Plus, to an extent, HBO Max, really great, is they have snackable content. You might log in on a Friday to watch Fear Street, but you're ending, you stay there to watch Friday Night Lights or 30 Rock or whatever you're watching. Like you're like, I'm just going to throw this on while I do laundry or I'm going to throw some while I'm relaxing at home before I have to go out. Netflix is king of this at this point. And it's integral to it. It's integral to their service. If we look at the overall demand for their catalog, a lot of it is for licensed content where they're like, yeah, yeah, we know that people may not want to watch a certain new Netflix show, but they do want to watch um, 30 Rock. And so they go and like, they're good on that front. They know this. Hulu is that answer for Disney. Hulu is without question the highest demand for the catalog across the entire thing, which just means that people are likely to sign up and stay signed up because there is huge demand for the content that is on that platform. And it's just, I wish it was on Disney Plus. And of course, the reason that it cannot be, I mean, there are so many, but one of the main reasons is that Disney cannot say this is now going to benefit our company directly and we're not going to pay attention to Hulu because Comcast, who has a 10% stake in the company still, and will be paid out at the valuation of it when it comes due, it's going to say, well, we are about a nine, you know, $9.5 billion valuation right now. That valuation goes down to $6 billion because all of a sudden all the Hulu stuff is on Disney Plus where you guys are benefiting you've got a massive lawsuit on your hands from a cable operator that you don't want to fight. And so they can't move stuff over. I'm very curious to see what happens with Hulu once the Comcast stake is is paid out, once they figure out what to do with Hulu and live TV, because obviously like they make a lot of their money via, and we, we know this because Kristen McCarthy, who's the chief financial officer, says on the earnings call all the time, which is Hulu has ad inventory. Like they, people, the advertiser are, want to be on, on Hulu. They want to be on Hulu and live TV. And so they can't just be like, well, we're going to just get rid of that revenue. And hopefully if we integrate this into Disney Plus, we see Disney Plus subscribers skyrocket 
you know, 30 million and the retention just stays there. But I think if there's a way to integrate part of the Hulu library that Disney owns into Disney Plus as a version of Star, all of a sudden Disney Plus becomes even more of an undeniable product. You know, Modern Family, you put it there. Blackish, you put it there. Like their ABC shows. Why aren't they on Disney Plus? They're family shows. Instead, they're on Hulu. If Hulu becomes a FX prestige play, plus some other stuff, and Disney Plus takes in a lot of the ABC freeform family content that exists on, on Disney Plus, all of a sudden you have the value proposition of that product quadruples. Um, and so I think that's my number one thing. It's like the catalog is not where it needs to be to be a full-fledged streaming service that can... Not that, that not that it can't compete, because it obviously has competed and will continue to compete. But in terms of quality of an overall streaming service, what we want out of this thing, we're spending eight to fifteen dollars on per month. It's not there, and that's because of the catalog. Its original series are always going to be great. Disney knows how to do things well. Well, there have been some periods of lows, but they, for the most part, have done pretty well, especially you know '90s onward, uh, minus a blip in animation in the early 2000s. They need that catalog to make Disney Plus as a whole a thing. So that's my answer. That's my long-winded answer is like, where is the snackable content that is going to keep me on Disney Plus on Friday or Wednesday, excuse me, when I open up Watch What If? I close Disney Plus right after. Like, it's like, I open, cool. If I open up Netflix to watch a show, there's a good chance, like a new show, there's a good chance I'm on Netflix the whole weekend. (laughs) Like that's because I'm just going to watch whatever else, like going to watch Shameless or whatever. So yeah, that's my answer. Yeah, I love that. And Julia, before we go here, I like doing recommendations at the end. So I'm going to go ahead and recommend the Imagineering story, which we already mentioned earlier. It's definitely one of those behind the scenes looks that I think is really well done. And if you have any interest in like engineering in general, or just how things are made, it's kind of the perfect show for that. Do you have anything that you would recommend? I'm going to uh, continue on with my Hulu Brigade. I just finished Dave, the second season, which is somehow one of the best shows I've watched in a very long time. So there's two seasons, both are streaming on Hulu, they're FX series, but I would recommend that if if anyone's interested in kind of heartfelt, but self-aware comedy about Little Dickie, who is a actual rapper, I would recommend it. Awesome. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode of Welcome to Geekdom. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so through our Patreon. If you want to follow us on socials, you can do so at Geekdom Pod on Twitter and at Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram and Facebook. And as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.